Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 4. Once again, John chapter 4, and we'll read 1 through 30 and then 39 to 42. It says, The word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, is, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will that you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Skipping down to 39. 
From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would, you would make hard hearts soft, that you would unstop deaf ears, that you would make the blind receive sight. Father, that you would, you would encourage and rebuke and strengthen us by your Spirit. Bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So this is our third sermon on this text of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. And we talked about Jesus' aggressive friendliness and, and the woman's desire, the, the Samaritan situation with their own temple being up there on Mount Gerizim and the temple, obviously, in Jerusalem. And Jesus, last, past, last time when we looked at this passage, disclosed himself as, disclosed his glory, that he was the Messiah. He was the, the one that uh, was being... Um, look to come. And so we, we concluded last time with that point blank verse uh, 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And it's right at that point that the disciples return. Thankfully, they didn't return five minutes before that. Clearly, God superintended even their return so that they would return after he had said those words. And so, right after he says he's the Messiah, they return. You remember that they had been sent off into the city, the city of Sychar, which is right there in in Samaria, to buy food. And they come back to the well and see that Jesus had spent the whole time they had been away talking with this woman. Uh, Because of this return, the unnamed woman does not have a chance to respond. We don't receive any words that she said to this glorious truth that had just been laid out to her. Um, John remarks that the disciples were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. They're amazed at the fact that he had been speaking with a woman. And it's not with this woman, it's with a woman. Right. Why were they amazed at this? Well, it's not merely that he was talking to this specific woman, but that he was talking to a woman at all. The rabbis taught, and the oral tradition contained uh, this statement, let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not with his own wife. And that was the oral tradition of the time. That was what the scribes and Pharisees would have been uh, teaching. And so the disciples carrying that with them, Right, that teaching, were amazed that Jesus would break with the tradition. 
I don't think it's because of her reputation either that they were amazed, right? That they knew she, they didn't have any knowledge of her reputation. They didn't know what Jesus knew about her having five husbands and, and not being married to the man that she was now with. It's merely the fact that she was a woman that led to their amazement at Jesus' interaction. Now, is this Jesus throwing off the convention of his time? Yes, it is Jesus throwing off the convention of his time. Is this Jesus instructing us that male and female are interchangeable and that the feminism of the last 60 years is good? No, not at all. That is not what he's, he's saying here. Um, as much as some today might like to over, oversupply Jesus throwing off of this, you know, or oversimplify Jesus throwing off of this first century uh, convention. Uh, just as Prisca's we okay there? Uh-oh. Oh, poor girl. You remember Prisca, Priscilla and Aquila, right? They taught, right? Just as Prisca teaching alongside her husband is not a reason to restrict or to, to is not a, to open up church authority. So Jesus speaking with this woman is no reason to make Jesus into a feminist, right? Having said that, Jesus is breaking convention. He's dignifying this woman with his openness and his, his access and his willingness to speak with her. His witness was more gracious than the scribes and Pharisees' witness. We also learned something from the apostles' unwillingness then to question Jesus as to his actions. Love that. They, they, the scripture shows us what they're thinking, but then they don't have the courage then to speak what they're thinking to Jesus. Scripture says, no one said, what do you seek? Some people think that that's, that's a question they had for the woman. Or why do you speak with her? And that's a question they had for Jesus. They could both be addressed to Jesus. But um, they see what Jesus has done. It amazes them because it breaks with custom and they do not question it. They do not question what he has done. And now what do we learn from that? Um, very simple lesson, right? We learn that there is a time when not understanding something that, that God has said or done as recorded in the scripture, we should wait for understanding before we start pronouncing a judgment about what is said in scripture. Wait, right? There's a time not to speak. There's a time to, to take something in from scripture and say, I have no idea what that means, and so I'm not going to go about blogging and talking and teaching about it. And, and there are so many... There, that was me in that, that passage in First Peter about Noah. I don't know. I just don't know. Right? And I, I think that's what I said in my sermon. My sermon was pretty much, I don't know. There's a time for that, right? We, how many new Christians have finally read the scriptures for the first time and they bump up against some action of God that they think is immoral. Right? They, they read through the scriptures the first time and, and, 
And it just blows their mind that God would command this thing or God would do this thing or that the saints would do such and such. And they just begin speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking on it. When at that point they should have been just like the apostles and just just been quiet. Think of, think of Abraham, God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Right? Any any person with half a heart feels sort of like, whoa, how, huh? Um, the command to destroy the cities and all the people of the land of Canaan. Allowing Satan to ravage Job. And not just Job and his body, but his family and his livelihood and his, his whole world is destroyed. Right? Um, God commanding Isaiah the prophet to walk naked through Jerusalem for three years as a witness against her. How could that be moral? Right? Commanding, or, uh, commanding Hosea to marry Gomer, a whore. Right? The, the unfaithful prostitute. Commanding... Uh, <sighs> God commanding through Rabbi Paul a woman to submit to her husband. Right? You, bu- you, you bump up against these things and, and your immediate reaction is to accuse God of immorality. Right? But we ought to wait until we have a better understanding of God's character right? before we begin blogging about the injustices and immorality of God's commands. The disciples questioned would have been ignorant indictments of Jesus. What are you doing? Why are you speaking with her? Right? They, they would have been taking the oral tradition above God himself and Jesus speaking. Right? They would have allowed their feelings to justify giving loose rein to their complaints, which is to say, We are all ignorant and should learn to wait for hidden things to be revealed to us from heaven in due time. Right? There are times when my children ask me why God would do this or that. Why would he do that? They're essentially offended, right? Anytime they ask that, sometimes it's they want to understand. But usually it's they're offended at God's actions. They're offended by what what he's done or what he's commanded. And often my answer is this, God is holy and so whatever he commands is good. Start with the character of God and then go from there, right? Whatever God, God is holy, 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 thrice holy, right? He is, he he never sins, he never does anything unrighteous. And so that's our starting point because that's what scripture teaches So God is holy, and so whatever he commands is good. That's the premise you start from. And in due time, or even perhaps never, you will come to understand as God reveals his character to you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Many people never get out of the the sophomore stage, right? The wise fool stage of their walk, and so rather than holding to the principles of Scripture that God is holy, and then working from there to answer their questions, they simply judge God's character, write him off, call him immoral based upon 
what? Their notions of, of what is fair, their law, their word, which is just themselves. Or something some pagan college professor taught them at university or something they heard on CNN. Or Fox News. Or one of those new Trump channels. I don't know what they're called. What do they see? I don't know. Some of you know. So, the disciples really show a work of grace in them by keeping their mouth shut. I mean, that, that shows some maturity here. That shows some faith in, in Jesus Christ. I, it's more than they're just fearful. It shows some maturity. Uh, they feared God. They feared God, and so they kept silent. And that led them to the kind of wisdom that does not subject God to what we feel. I mean, that is modern scholarship, isn't it? That is the modern seminary. Subjecting, that is the modern pulpit. Subjecting God to our feelings. Protecting you from what God, what, what is revealed about God in Scripture. Keeping you from the Word of God. Right? That is what we do today in our sophistication, and then we all become liars. Now, what does the woman do? What does the woman do at this point? She quickly leaves her water pot. That's the whole reason she's there, right? She's there to get water and take it back to her home. She quickly leaves her water pot, goes into the city of Sychar, Perhaps more amazing than Jesus speaking with the woman is the woman speaking with the men of the city. She goes in, she opens up about what's just happened to her, right? Um, she leaves her water pot and becomes an evangelist. And more important to her than having water herself and for her home is to tell others of what she just learned, right? Even though the men would have been predisposed to dismiss her. Right? They would have been predisposed to just say, mm, go get your water and go home. Now, is your faith like the faith of that woman? Do you want to tell others what you have found? Do you want to tell others what you have found? Right? She didn't know much, but she had, she had knowledge that this perhaps was the Messiah. She takes that knowledge, she runs into the city, right into the middle of everything, opens her mouth. Do you find yourself trying to hide the fact that you're a Christian? If Jesus Christ and your knowledge of him is not overwhelmingly precious to you, the world will provide you with a thousand reasons why you should be ashamed of him. Right? They will teach you that Jesus was a bigot, that Jesus was insane, that Jesus is a myth, that Jesus was, you know, worse than all of those, that Jesus was a godly man, merely. And you will do what you can to hide the fact that you have what is considered an unreasonable faith. You will be shamed. Right For what Jesus taught, that things like a man is a man and a woman is a woman and marriage is for a man and woman and there is no heaven for anybody who does not have faith in Jesus Christ. 
If it is true that you have little desire to share what you have, well, then consider whether or not you have found the pearl of great price. Do you think you found a piece of old scrap aluminum? The pearl of great price. That which we don't value, we don't share, right? Obviously, that which we don't value, we don't share. And what are some of the things we value? Well, Loki. Right? What great story, what great graphics. Disney. We share that. We go to, you know, we'll go to school and we'll be like, did you, this and that? And, you know, you read the word of God that day and that doesn't get shared. Does that maybe show us our hearts? Does that maybe show us what we think is precious? That which we don't value, we don't share. And the more we value something, the more we want to know, we want others to know about it, right? And I'm not even talking about sharing things, sharing things of the faith with unbelievers. What about with just your own family? Right? Are you doing that? Is Christ of so little value to you that you are not speaking to your own children about his glory? You know, at, at, at this point, you, you read the commentaries and Ryle is getting riled up in this section. And he says, are we even converted? Right? Are we even converted? When, when you think about what we share and what we think is precious and what, what we give ourselves to, and Ryle's just like, are we even converted? Can those who are converted be so cold in their zeal for Christ's renown? You know, ask yourself that. Do some soul searching. Examine yourself on that question. The woman tells the men of the city, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. <laughs> this is not the Christ, is it? This is not the Christ, is it? It's a very simpler message, isn't it? I mean, come, and, come see a man who told me. She, she just says, come and see. Come and see. Come and see what I just saw. Come and see what I just experienced. Come and see. And, and again, from this, Ryle suggests something that I don't think we consider. When we witness, we want to intellectually convince somebody of the truth of Christianity. That's what all this evidentialism and all this stuff has convinced us. We have to like have great arguments and convince somebody. And, and Ryle, though, says, invite people to a trial of the faith. Just invite them to try things out. Did we ever consider that? Do we have to get into the doctrine of the Trinity right off the bat? No, it's just like, come to church, taste and see. Come to church, come and see. Come and see if, if, if these people are as crazy as you think they are. Get them into church and let them see Christ in you and others. He... Um, Ryle writes, a bold invitation to come and make trial of the gospel often produces more effect than the most elaborate arguments in support of its doctrines. Most men do not want their reason convinced so much as their will bent and their conscience aroused. 
I think this is true in my experience. It's those Christians who invite people into their homes. It's those Christians who invite people to their church that are often the disciple makers, right? Often the apologist is not the best evangelist, right? Those who loved, and we need apologists. Not, don't hear what I'm not saying. Those who love Jesus, those who love his church and invite others into that context are often no, they, they are the best evangelists. The woman says, come and see. Come and see. And I wonder if we do the same. Come and see. Just come and see. I, I, don't, I can't answer your question about how Jesus is God. Just come and see. Come and see. I, I wonder if we should do the same. If your evangelism is intellectual, you're going to win intellectuals to an intellectual faith. That's what you'll do. If your evangelism is based upon people witnessing your love for Christ in the family of God, well, then you have more hope of winning them to something that is more than merely intellectual assent. So perhaps that will free some of you up to practice evangelism. All you have to do is say, come and see. I don't know. Come and see. Come listen to the pastor preach. Come, come to the church and see if the people are nice to you and ask you about how your week's been. So, um, instead of having to explain the, the obscure, you simply say, come and see. Now, she also says that Jesus told her all the things that she had done. Of course, this does not, <laughs> this isn't to be taken literally. Um, she had breakfast on July 4th, you know, uh, AD 31, um, but he did get to the core of her heart by revealing to her the sin that she was engaged in. He got to all that mattered, right? He got to everything important immediately. He revealed all that mattered, and then he gave not only that, but he gave her hope, gave her hope in himself. And then she says, in a question, this is not the Christ, is it? Now, it seems like, you know, she's just heard the man say, I'm the Messiah. And then she phrases it a question to the men of the city of Sychar. I think she knew, but she is posing it as a question to show deference to the men with whom she is speaking. She's showing deference. She phrases it as a question, right? Anticipating their pride, she realizes that an assertion by her would be quickly dismissed. This is the Christ. They would have said, ah, go away. Right? Um, they would have scoffed just as the apostles did when Mary Magdalene announced to them that she had seen the Lord. Right? They would have done the same thing. Again, what kindness and patience she is showing in her new faith and zeal. It may be a good technique in our witness to add questions that make people search for answers rather than to make bold assertions that they have to immediately accept, right? Plant seeds, ask questions, provoke their conscience. There's time for assertions and they have to come. There has to be statements of truth. The Apostle Paul on Mars Hill denounces the philosophers for their ignorance. That's a statement of truth. Right? But there is also a time for questions, questions and come and see. 
Make a trial of this. I mean, we just don't even think that way, right? Make a trial of Christianity. It seems wrong on some level to us. Make a trial of it. Try it out. Come to church. But that is what we're doing when we invite people into our homes and into our church. We're saying, come and see. And they're watching and learning. Now, what is the result of her excitement and her invitation? The men of the city go out of the city and were coming to Jesus. Right? Then we skip down to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. She she said, come and see. They came and saw. And though they initially were curious to know um, this man because of what the woman said, they eventually believed because they had heard from Christ himself. And I think there is something very important in these verses. It's undoubtedly true that we hear Christ from others initially. We hear Christ from others initially, from friends, from strangers, um, especially we might hope from our parents. And some of us believe based upon their testimony, but everyone who believes in that way must come to terms with Christ himself. Right? We can believe somebody's testimony and, and sort of be coasting. Every soul must come to see, come to the point whether they initially showed interest based upon being raised in the church or being a root out of dry ground. They have to come to the point where they grapple with the living God as Jacob did. They grapple with God himself. Right? God uses many means to draw us to himself, but there is no true drawing to himself that does not fill the soul with delight in God himself. Every soul, no matter how they came to the church, must at some point have heard the very voice of Christ. Christian faith is more than merely intellectual assent. It is a relationship with the living God. That's what it is. It is a relationship with the living God. The Christian faith is more than holding values in common with other people. Right? It is, the li it is living in the very fear of God and the joy of His grace. Right? The Christian faith is more than yielding to some guy's urging of you. It is knowing God as a father right? and being adopted into His household. How many, though, think of Christianity as merely the virtuous life and not li life lived under the God who is really there, who is really watching, who is really holy, who is, is infinitely gracious, right? I fear a lot think that way, that Christianity is merely the virtuous life. And I fear that some, even in our congregation, believe that that's what Christianity amounts to. 
You children who have grown up in the church, right? You young ones who have grown up in the church. Do you think your baptism will save you? If you go on living like there is no God in heaven who searches about the earth for those whose hearts are wholly devoted to him. It's good that you have believed what your parents have taught you. It's good you should believe what your parents have taught you. Just as it was good that the the men of Sychar believed because of the testimony of this woman. But those men ended up believing because they went to hear Jesus himself. They came and saw, they heard the truth from his very lips. And you too must go from believing because of what your parents taught you to believing because you opened up God's inscripturated word and there learned from the Son of God himself. Until that happens, there will be very little point in believing. There will be very little point. There will be very little joy in believing. There will be very little power in believing. You'll just go on believing because your parents told you it was a good thing to do, and you'll have a dead intellectual faith. But when you come away from the Word of God, having searched there for truth, having searched there for something that will move your heart, having searched there and, and God, God's Spirit finally unlocks your mind and your heart, well then, then you will know God. Then you will know God. And from there you will believe because of Jesus' own testimony and your faith will not be an empty shell that, that somehow is activated by proximity, by closeness to your parents. You'll believe. It will become precious to you. Here's another thing. You've heard, you've heard many things from others, but have you paid attention to God's word preached during church. Young men and women, have you paid attention to the word of God preached? One of the indications that Christ is at work in you is that you will receive the word of God as if it were preached from God directly to yourself. You will say, God's going to speak to me today. I want to be in church. God has something to say to me. I need to be in church. Right? Has God spoken to you in the word? Have you been wanting to hear from him? Do you realize that it is from the pulpit that he will speak to you? One of the biggest indications that Christ is precious to you is that you will anticipate that he is going to speak to you through the word preached. The word preached will be God speaking and not just something that you listen to that your parents quiz you on after the service. Right? You'll receive it as a gift. You'll long for it as something that comes directly from God. You will hear it and put it into practice without your parents having to prompt you at all. You'll hear it. You'll do it because you love Jesus. Get this, Christ still speaks by his ministers today. Am I allowed to say that in the pulpit? He's going to do that until he returns. That's, that's what he has given to his church. 
That's how the word of God goes forth. From the minister of the word preaching in his church. Now I guess I guess I should say that you should you should think higher thoughts of the preaching of the word. And I'm not I, I honestly am not I, I blah. I mean, I'm shorting out just saying it, right? And it, it fills me with fear more than it fills me with right? It fills me with fear that God somehow would be working through me and I've sinned this week and my preparation for sermon writing has been terrible and I've just wanted to watch Loki. And I've got to get up here in the pulpit and preach God's word. And yet God says that he blesses this thing we call the preaching of the word. And that this is where the word of, this is, this is where God speaks today. God still speaks through his ministers and he will do that until he returns, right? And then we will hear directly from him. But are you listening? Are you listening to the word of God? Are you listening to the preaching of the word? Do you have thoughts rather than doodles after you hear the Word of God preached? People tell me they can listen better when they doodle. I can't. I got to listen and I got to give eye contact and I have to nod my head and that's how I stay engaged in the preaching of the Word of God. So what is it that the men of Sikker learn? They learn that Jesus is... The Savior of the world. That's what they learn. Right? That's what they announce here. They learn that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Right? They learn what Mary had learned from the angel Gabriel at the outset. They learn that there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. Earlier with the woman at the well, Jesus had, had said that salvation is from the Jews but he certainly made it clear that to the, to the Samaritans that it was nevertheless for the entire world. One Savior. Salvation is from the Jews, but it's for the world. John would later write in his first letter, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so it is that Jesus, in calling these Samaritans to himself, makes it clear that salvation is not just for Israel, but for all the nations of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world, dear brothers and sisters. Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is our faith. This is our worldview. This is our hope. This is our entire view of history. The nations rage and, the, and speak of their importance, but it's all vanity. Our talking heads and our rich people pour forth words about the ways they will perfect humanity, right, and bring peace to the world through social reform. Our universities delude, you know, unthinking young men and women into thinking that a life without God is, is proper, it's enlightened sort of living. Our public intellectuals, liberal and conservative, place their hope in political parties and platforms. 
scientists assure us that drastic action will now lead to the ongoing existence of man, as if they've never been wrong before. Asbestos. Rich men blast themselves off into space. I think Richard Branson is right now being blasted off into space. Telling us that the future will be better when we are multi-planetary. We'll have two planets to blow up. Two planets in which to wage war. Philosophers and psychologists... Look inward for understanding, hoping to find some trigger in man that leads to perfection. We, us Christians, see things differently. A triune God created all that exists. He is a God of love, and so love reigns in this world. Adam, the first man, rebelled against that God. And so death and sin usurped love's reign. And now that God of love entered into his creation, now filled with the violence and evil of of wicked men, and he entered into that creation when the Son of God took on flesh and dwelled among us, and the God-man, Jesus Christ, came as the Savior of the world. To save the world, he did not just take up the means of the world and become a psychologist or a scientist or a public intellectual. That's not what he did. Although, he's the best psychologist and scientist and public intellectual ever. No, he came so that he could die. He just came to die. His death was an acknowledgement that sin is terrible and God is holy. He died in your place. He died in your place. He died for you. He died so that his father would be just by punishing sin and the justifier by pronouncing wicked men forgiven. Jesus Christ is the God who died for his people's sins. Then after his death, he defeated the the enemy that had completely beaten every man up to that point. Death. Death. He defeated an enemy that was undefeated. Our Jesus, he is the savior of the world. That's what our Jesus is. He's the savior of the world. God came into this world He traveled to Samaria. He got thirsty. He asked a Samaritan woman for a drink. She went into the city to tell the people who lived there about Jesus and the amazing things he had said to her. The men of that city came out. They sat at the feet of Jesus, this God-man, and the Spirit of God worked in their hearts so they came to know about God's provision of a Savior. And the apostles watched. And the apostles heard. And the apostles wrote down what they had heard, and now their written testimony has come to us. And you've heard this text preached today. 
And you are in the great stream of those who have learned about Jesus Christ and who have heard about him. You are one of the recipients of this woman's testimony. And the further testimony of these Samaritan Christians. And their testimony and the testimony of God's word is Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. You may have faith in the public intellectuals, the writers of bestsellers, right? the popular bloggers. You may have faith in the scientists, in the materialists. You may have faith in the philosophers and, and in the psychologists. They, though, are not saviors because they have no power. They have no power over what? They have no power over death. Death gets them all. Death is something that they can't, can't overcome even in their teaching, let alone in their actual lives. They have no power over death. They are not gods, but are mere creatures with limited minds and limited hearts, and those hearts and minds are tainted with sin. But Jesus Christ was God. He lived among us. He, he, he came because he loved us. He died because he loved us. He rose from the dead because he loved us. Right? He, he is the singular savior of the world. And if you doubt this, come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Read what is written of him. Open your Bibles. Read what is written of him. See if he is not alive still and working. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him. For he is gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. You'll find rest for your soul. I tell you as a minister of the word, as a minister of Jesus Christ, he is the one and only savior of the world. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that you sent him knowing that he would suffer and die. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not regard equality with your Father a thing to be clinged to, but you emptied yourself, taking on the form of a bondservant, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, and dying in place of us, in place of your people. Father, I pray that our minds would be boggled by the glory and simplicity of your design, of the way that you have made things to work. Father, we see we see remnants and we see, we see vestiges of your creating of man's fall, of his redemption and victory over death in every one of the stories of this world. And that's because of the truth of this story, the truth of this history. So Father, I pray for those who still consider the word of God to be myth, 
still consider it to be the work of men, that you would unstop their, that you would give them a heart of flesh and remove a heart of stone. Father, when we get confused about this, when we cast a longing eye to the world, when we get swept up in, the, in thinking that the, the world is precious and Jesus is not so, Father, I pray that you would remind us through affliction, through your word, through any means, remind us of the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for the, the, the light thoughts we have had of, of your work. Forgive us for how we are not in awe of things that we once were in awe of. Our faith has grown, grown lukewarm. I fear you are ready to spit us out to your church in this land. And Father, we, we ask that your spirit would kindle fire in our hearts for Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be willing to be those fools that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians. Fools in the sight of the world, but let us be saved fools. We thank you, Father, for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus. And Father, we anticipate that we will be able to sing your praises and give you thanks after we cross over that threshold between this life and the next. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ that allows us to even come into your presence. Without it, we would be lost. Without it, we could not come to your presence because, Father, you love righteousness and you love holiness. So thank you for those robes of white earned by Jesus. I pray that these things would fill our minds, that we would rejoice in your salvation, that you and your Son and the Spirit would be our pearl of great price and that we would rejoice continually in our salvation. May we have lips that give you thanks continually. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.